0: Well, Last Sunday we were in Daniel together. I ask you to turn in your Bibles there again, this time to chapter 3. Daniel 3. I was asked as I was leaving last Sunday if I could maybe fill in next Sunday night too. So this is going to be a two-parter. Part 1 tonight and part 2, God willing, next Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, as we sang earlier, uh, as we heard it sung, Um, It is sweet to trust in you uh, just to to know, thus saith the Lord. Uh, We praise you because you have chosen to reveal yourself through your word, and we ask now that you would help us to understand it, and by the power of your Holy Spirit be transformed by it. We thank you for the opportunity to meet here tonight, and we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our response, uh, both now and as we... Start our week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God willing, we will cover the whole chapter within the next two weeks. But just for today, I want to start by looking at the first seven verses of Daniel 3. So let's read them. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits And it's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. May God bless his word. When we think about sin in the Old Testament, it is not too difficult for us to identify with a man like David. His sins of lust and adultery and murder remain very prevalent today. Sarah's sins in Genesis of treating someone else harshly and doubting the promises of God are things that we can identify with very easily, I think. But I wonder if it's harder for us to identify with idol worship. After all, in the Old Testament, it seems that Israel and every other nation was constantly in trouble for worshiping idols. Whether it was Asheroth or Dagon or one of the bells, people were always bowing down to something, something man-made rather than the one true God, and sometimes they were doing both. So maybe it's a little harder for us to relate to because as I look around, I don't see statues of Baal in Sanford or Carthage or Vass or any of the towns nearby to go pay tribute to. Our idols today don't take the same form by and large as those in 586 BC. So maybe it's hard sometimes for us to identify with some of the sins of the Old Testament. And idol worship is one of the very prevalent sins of the Old Testament. But none of us tonight should be deceived. The problem is not with the Old Testament. The problem is with us. Lest you think idol worship is a problem that's reserved for the first 39 books of the Bible, we need to be clear tonight that idol worship is always a problem, regardless of the era of human history. Idol worship is is always a problem regardless of the era of human history. And that makes Daniel 3 very important for us tonight because worshiping idols has very little to do with statues or trinkets, but very much to do with the state of our hearts. The hearts of men, quite simply, in our sinful condition from the womb, we are idol-making factories, it has been said. And I think that's a good way to put it. Our hearts are idol factories. In Genesis 1, the very beginning, we're told that God made man in his own image. Male and female he created them. And it was very good. In his image. But only two chapters later in Genesis 3, sin enters the world and death through sin. And since then we have been making gods in our own image. We make gods like ourselves and things we like, and and, and we become more and more like those things. It's a a way in which we, from the very beginning, have accommodated our own sinfulness. You see, the difficulty in in facing the one true God is that you and I, we all have to face our own inadequacy, our own sinfulness. But if we reject God, and if we invent a God of our own, a God who, who has no trouble with us living our lives the way we want to live them, a God that makes no demands of us. Well, it's a lot easier to live with that type of God, isn't it? A God in our own image. A God who is going to take lightly the things we want Him to take lightly. So we create gods in our own image, rather we realize it or not. And there is this constant conflict between the worship of the one true God and that of false gods made in the minds of men. God is holy God is perfect, but the deities of men always express our own personalities, always express our own sinfulness, and mirror our own deficiencies. When we follow after our own gods, it inevitably leads to immorality because of the sin in the one who made it, us. Us. So idolatry is not a problem for yesterday, it's right here, it's right now, it's for you, it's for me. That's because an idol is and can be anything, and I do mean anything, that we put before worshiping God the way He has told us to worship Him. Idols are anything which corrupts pure, true worship anything that we put before God. And that brings us to Babylon, almost 600 years before Jesus was born, and a powerful king named Nebuchadnezzar with the Jewish people in exile. We talked about that last Sunday night, especially young men in whom they saw no defect. There was great potential in these men, potential to further the glory of Babylon, potential to further the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. We we saw Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, and they tried to strip these men of their Jewishness. They tried to make these men Babylonians. They gave them names like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They they had them talk like Babylonians, speak their language, which wasn't a problem. They had them eat like Babylonians, which was a problem. They wouldn't do that because it would violate God's laws. So when the decision came to dishonor God or potentially risk their lives, they risked their lives. They refused to eat what God did not permit, and God's word was more important than the king's word. And well, if you have read through Daniel, you remember that they wound up healthier than the rest, and so they were permitted to live and keep eating the way they wanted and the way that God had prescribed, and God blessed them. They entered the king's personal service. They Uh, were given knowledge and and wisdom and and intelligence and literature by God. And Daniel, in particular, was given the ability to interpret dreams. And that becomes very important in chapter 2. And just to kind of recap what happened there, because it sets the stage for this, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And they troubled him. He couldn't sleep. So he called his wise men and his sorcerers in, but they couldn't help him either. They couldn't interpret the dream, and he became angry. He wanted to kill them. But Daniel stepped in and, and his friends prayed God would give him wisdom to interpret the dreams, and he did. And in the dream Nebuchadnezzar saw one very large statue. Its appearance, Daniel 231, was awesome. The, the head was made of fine gold, the breast and arms were silver, the belly and thighs bronze, and the legs iron and feet part iron and part clay. But then a stone was cut out without hands, and it crushed the statue so much that the wind carried it away and not a trace was to be found. That stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And what Daniel did was he told the king that that statue represents four great kingdoms that are going to succeed one another. But finally, they're going to be crushed by the stone, and that stone is the kingdom of the God of heaven. And and God here, what he was doing was giving Nebuchadnezzar a preview of his plan for future history. And and letting the king know that your kingdom is the first of those kingdoms. He was the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, by his actions though, he showed that he didn't care about God's plan for future history. He stops listening when he hears he's the head of gold. Because at the beginning of chapter 3, we find him building a whole statue. His version of future history was different than God's. He's not satisfied with just being the head of gold. He has to be the entire statue. All gold. All him. And he's thumbing his nose at the God of Daniel and saying, I won't allow Daniel's God to set my kingdom aside for another. I will endure. That's the mindset, really, And and that mindset is at the heart of this entire book. Whose God is God? Who rules history? The thing is, it was God who had made Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold in the first place. He's the one who establishes every king, every authority. Whether you like the president or not, whether you like the last president or not. It's God who establishes every authority. In every place. Daniel two twenty one says, It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Romans 13.1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. In Proverbs two twenty or not two twenty-one, twenty-one one, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. So God is in control of kings. We would do well to remember that the next time we watch the news, I think. Every time we watch the news, right? So Nebuchadnezzar, rather he realizes or not, rather he honors God or not, he's established by God, but that doesn't make Nebuchadnezzar God. That God made him king doesn't make him autonomous. Nebuchadnezzar can't just do whatever he wants earthly rulers don't have unlimited power on the contrary as one preacher wrote that God raises them up limits their power for they are responsible to the one who set them up rather they acknowledge him or not that's absolutely true except Nebuchadnezzar doesn't consider his power limited And he doesn't feel responsible to anyone. So he made a statue, an image of gold. He sets it up in the plain of Dura in Babylon. It's very tall, it's very narrow, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. That's what 60 cubits by 6 cubits amounts to, roughly. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar's ego leads him to set up an image of himself, a kind of preview of what the last ruler of the world will do other than Christ. He, he's the king of Babylon, and, and this is sort of a preview, a coming attraction of the beast of Revelation, the one we call Antichrist, who will do something very similar. And so he sends word to the satraps and all these others, all these rulers of all the provinces, and Babylon is a vast kingdom, and they are all to come to the plain of Dura. Why? Because he's determining history. He was like God in his own mind. He's the statue of gold. His kingdom was to endure. He would essentially demand, he's going to bring everyone together and demand universal worship. And so he gathers all the leaders of his kingdom together to unify his vast empire under the worship of himself. Nebuchadnezzar gathered everyone together to make it clear you are to set aside whatever convictions you might have in order to glorify me. He heard his herald, he, or he had his herald proclaim To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And just in case you're having reservations about that, if you don't, You are going into the furnace. And and so he's a preview of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, the coming son of destruction, what he will do. The man who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. That's what he's doing here. Babylon was already a polytheistic society, meaning that they worshipped Many gods. And so here's the king having heard God's plan for the future. He's not content just to be the king. You've got to worship me. So he practically takes his seat as God when he has that golden image built and he commands everyone to bow down. So, what did the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the treasurers and the counselors and the judges and the magistrates do? Verse 7, they bowed. Men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And this is a universal truth, beloved. The heart of a man for whom the one true God is not king will always, inevitably, bow the knee to an idol. The heart of a man or woman who is not committed to the one true God as king will always inevitably bow the knee to an idol. And that idol can take many forms, but we are, by sinful default, idol worshipers. We are inclined to worship idols. When we read our Bibles, we find idolatry is the most basic issue God addresses over and over and over again. The, the first two commandments deal with this. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. And, you know, we we read that second commandment and always associate idols with likenesses or with statues or with images. But God says, don't make an idol or likeness. Idols don't have to be physical objects. And idolatry is not something reserved for history past. It's not a sin reserved for Eastern cultures. It's not something from which we are immune. On the contrary, I'd argue our culture is as idolatrous as any that has ever dwelt on the face of the earth. Idols are anything and anybody which captures our hearts, our minds, our affections more than God. Our idols are on display every hour of every day. Satan doesn't have to search very hard, beloved, to figure out what he can use against us. He only needs to work with the material we give him. Because rarely is there any meaningful length of time when there isn't a temptation for idolatry. The, word has, the world has idols of power, money, sex, pleasure, romance, education, body image, Athletic ability. How about the idol of acceptance? Nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants to feel isolated. Nobody wants to be quarantined from society. Nobody chooses to be that way. Nobody wants to live alone. We are made for community. We want to be accepted. And sometimes that means we're willing to forsake obedience. We're willing to follow external pressures to be accepted. We think about peer pressure for our kids, but it's just as bad for adults. We're willing to negotiate here. We're willing to compromise there. Look the other way about this. Justify ourselves about that. Also, people won't look at us and think, he doesn't belong. She doesn't belong. We want to feel accepted. And sometimes we can make acceptance an idol. How about comfort? Comfort is one of our biggest idols, I think. Many work hard to earn a good living and have nice things. But when that begins to get in the way of the kind of real sacrificial faith Jesus calls His disciples to, what happens? Our comfort becomes an idol. And... That happens way more than we want to admit, maybe way more than we even realize. No matter what our income is, our God becomes our standard of living and we become so consumed, we can at least, become so consumed with what we have or or don't have or keeping what we have or what are we going to do with what we have that we forget who gives it to us. We become so enamored with being comfortable, we forget that Yahweh is our shepherd and in Him we shall not want. There are other kinds of idols. Gaining prominence can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. Children can be an idol. Um, Spouses, mothers, fathers, friends. We can make anything an idol if we really try. If they come before Jesus, they can absolutely become idols to us. Projects always needing to have something to do, distracting us from the things God calls us to do. Even worship can become an idol, and and I mean that. Worship can become an idol. When we go about worshiping something other than the one true God, also when we worship God in a manner He does not prescribe. King Saul, 1 Samuel 15, he decided to worship God but worship God his way. And not the way God told him to. His, his way, his preferences became his idol. And for, the kingdom, for, for that, the kingdom was ripped away from him. In Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire before the Lord. Were they out of fellowship with God? Are they in heaven or or, or are they in Hades? Are, I can't say for sure, but what I can say is that God disciplined them with death because he, they offered fire in a manner He did not prescribe. And God judged them harshly. And I could go further about that, but uh, I won't tonight. Beloved, there's always a battle raging in us and around us. And it's not going to stop until our physical deaths or God willing, the return of Christ. Idols are deceptive. We look to them with the hope of satisfaction, but in the end they steal our joy. Because we are not meant to worship other things. We end up exchanging the pure worship of the eternal Christ for the temporary pleasures of fleeting substitutes. That's what idolatrous living is. It's living on substitutes, exchanging the living God for a counterfeit. And we are prone, we can be prone to make excuses for that. We are prone to self-justification. We are prone to uh, convince ourselves that the external pressures we're following are really our internal principles. We find ways to make wrong seem right, and it comes way too easy for us. And I include myself in this. Just so you know, I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone else tonight. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians five, fifteen, and 16, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We've got to be extremely careful, beloved, because the days are evil. As Christians, we've got to walk by His Word and worship Christ as He has revealed Himself. Thus saith the Lord. The world doesn't like that. And so it demands that you nudge this way or that way and that you give in to the external pressures, that you succumb to the substitutes. Worship idols or else. And we see that very clearly these days in our culture as our culture becomes more secular, as we deal with... with a, a rapidly changing culture that is seeking to push Christianity to the fringes of society and knock it off a cliff. We find that more and more. Worship idols or bear the repercussions. You lose your jobs, you lose your account on social media, you, you, you lose friends, you lose this, you lose that, you lose whatever. Worship idols or bear the repercussions, whether they be poverty Discomfort, disassociation, being hated, being called names, being beaten or tortured or even killed, or maybe just being ostracized, even from those you love. Maybe when you take a stand for truth and it rubs even the people you love the most the wrong way. Will you choose your family or will you choose the Lord? The world demands that we worship anything other than Jesus Christ alone. The the world demands we worship idols. And so how are we going to respond to that? Maybe you know something you need to be doing, but you don't do it. James says, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. It's sin because you've placed the idol of self before God. If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, you are choosing yourself for some reason instead of what God wants you to do. You've preferred your own will over Christ's command to follow Him. Do, do you know this, this evening? Search your hearts. Do you know something you need to be doing and you don't do it? The answer to that question is probably Yes way more often than we'd like what else is there in your life that you place above worshipping God the way he calls you to worship him what keeps you from full faithful obedience to Jesus tonight is it your comfort your security is it money is it acceptance is it your routine we can make our own routines an idol this is the way I like to do things these things the world treasures. Beloved, First John two fifteen through 17 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Who are what? Are you worshiping? Not just here and now, but with your life. How did the people respond when told by Nebuchadnezzar to worship the image or else? They bowed down and worshiped. All of them. Almost. Three men said no. God willing, we're going to look more about at that next week. But until then, how will we worship Christ together? Quite simply, 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. The word flee strikes me very much. When you're fleeing something, you're not walking. When you're fleeing something, you're not taking baby steps away from the thing you don't need to be doing. When you're fleeing something, you are running as fast as you can in the opposite direction. You are not taking half measures. I think that's one of the weaknesses of of the churches in our country today. We we are content, Christians, we are content far too often to take half measures with our own pursuit of holiness. We don't flee idolatry. Paul says flee idolatry. Run as fast as you can away from idolatry and the very last verse of First John should also be noted here. First John 5.21 Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So flee from worshiping substitutes instead of me and guard yourselves from idols. Get as far away as you can and be ready because they're going to pursue you. I heard it said recently that true worship is when all that I am responds correctly to all that God is. When all that we are responds correctly to all that God is. That's so true. But it's also impossible in and of ourselves. The bottom line, beloved, is that we in and of ourselves cannot flee from idolatry. And in and of ourselves, we don't have it in us to flee from idolatry. As descendants of Adam, we are sinners. So, you know, they tried to cover their own sin. We try to cover our own sin. They, they, they sinned. They, you know, the children of Adam began to set up idols. By Genesis 5, you got a train wreck. By Genesis 6, God sending a flood. And then the whole process kept going after that. By Genesis 11, he's scattering everyone across the whole world. Paul says, we don't do good, nor do we seek for God in Romans 3, much less worship Him in and of ourselves. God demands perfect righteousness, and quite simply, we don't measure up. The result, if nothing changes, is that eternal torment we talked about this morning. So so we need someone... To not only take the punishment we deserve, but provide for a righteousness we can't muster up. And that someone, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cure for our addiction to idols. And the only only cure. God in human flesh lived a perfectly sinless life and went to the cross to bear the punishment we deserve. He is the substitute who is worthy of our worship, because He was our substitute on that cross. Yet He rose from the grave on the third day to give life to all who will ever believe in Him. And He he didn't just give us life as in heaven, but He gave us victory over death and victory over sin. We don't have to sin. We are freed in Christ from the enslaving power of, Of idols. Nebuchadnezzar demanded everyone worship the image. The world demands you worship anything but Christ. Praise God we can worship Him instead. Tonight, we don't have to bow the knee to our fleeting bank accounts. We don't have to worship our retirement. We don't have to worship our comfort or any of these other things we've talked about. We only need to see Jesus today as the Son of God and the Savior of men and the one who is sufficient. 2 Peter 1.3 says, We have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. We don't have to sin. We don't have to worship idols. We don't have to bow the knee to the King or to anyone else other than Jesus Christ. So, beloved, if you are here today, and you don't trust in Jesus, know this, you have no power against the seductive and destructive power of idols. Maybe you, like Nebuchadnezzar, are saying, I will not allow the God of the Bible to control my life. I'll go to church, but I'm in control. Well, your penalty will be more severe than you can imagine. But God offers each and every one of us hope today. He offers us hope in Christ. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you are trusting in Jesus, I think you probably know along with me tonight that the struggle doesn't end the minute we become Christians. It only gets more intense But we won't be separated from that temptation until we see Jesus face to face. But we can rest in the blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. And we can rest in the fact that there is victory in Jesus. He is better. He is more powerful. And He gives us life more abundantly now. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah understood that even if they didn't know the name of Jesus yet. They would know Him more closely later in chapter 3. But until next week, flee from idols. Flee! Tonight as we come to a close, tonight as we are about to sing a hymn, Tonight, as we prepare to go about the rest of our week before Ephesus Baptist Church gathers together again next Sunday. What in your life is preventing you? What in your life gets in the way of just worshiping Christ? Flee from idolatry and run to Jesus. Identify those things in your life and run to Jesus. And He will save you. He will preserve you. He will give you victory. Our God is good. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for victory in Christ. I thank You that You give us hope in Christ, that we don't have to sin, that we don't have to bow the knee to any image or any idol. But Lord, help us to flee from idolatry and guard ourselves from idols. Help us to identify the idols in our own hearts so that we can, by your grace and for your glory, by your power, flee from them and serve you with wholehearted obedience, with a holy zeal for your glory that we might know you and the power of your resurrection all the more. If there be anyone here tonight who doesn't know you, Father, I pray that you would make them alive even tonight that they would know you by faith tonight. And if there's any of my brothers and sisters here who are struggling with a sin, who are struggling with something that gets in the way of serving you, who struggle with something they sometimes love more than they love you, I pray you will help them know they are free from that in Christ. And that they can lay that at your feet and say, Take it, you're better. We thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.